This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got psychedelic water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for curvy girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up ladies. Pretty good stuff. I think I've got a, I've got a sickness for the thickness and I have to recommend curvy girl. Alright, also Clary. Fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Clary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Clary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for special. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. We've done this in the past, but this is a better coffee, and when a better coffee shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started our... Uh, Anyway, yeah. yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe uh, probably Ken Hyde or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters. 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well, or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well too. And uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right. Well, here we go with some terror from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop, check out our sponsors. Recording by Jenny Clements. The Terror by Arthur Machen, The Light on the Water. Let it be noted carefully that so far Merritt had not the slightest suspicion that the Terror of Middlingham was quick over Marion. Lewis had watched and shepherded him carefully. He had let out no suspicion of what had happened in Marion. Before taking his brother-in-law to the club, he had passed round a hint among the members. He did not tell the truth about Middlingham. And here again is a point of interest that as the terror deepened, the general public cooperated voluntarily, and one would say almost subconsciously with the authorities in concealing what they knew from one another. But he gave out a desirable portion of the truth, that his brother-in-law was nervy, not by any means up to the mark, and that it was therefore desirable that he should be spared of the knowledge of the intolerable and tragic mysteries which were being enacted all about them. "'He knows about that poor fellow who is found in the marsh,' said Lewis, "'and he has a kind of vague suspicion that there is something out of the common about the case, but no more than that.' "'A clear case of suggested or rather commanded suicide,' said Lemnett. "'I regard it as a strong confirmation of my theory.' "'Perhaps so,' said the doctor, dreading lest he might have to hear about the Z-Ray all over again. "'But please don't let anything out to him. I want him to get built up thoroughly before he goes back to Middlingham.' "'Then, on the other hand, Merritt was still as death about the doings of the Midlands. "'He hated to think of them, much more to speak of them. "'And thus, as I say, he and the men at the Porth Club kept their secrets from one another. "'And thus, from the beginning to the end of the terror, the links were not drawn together. "'In many cases, no doubt.' A and B met every day and talked familiarly. It may be confidentially on other matters of all sorts, each having in his possession half of the truth, which he concealed from the other, so the two halves were never put together to make a whole. Merritt, as the doctor guessed, had a kind of uneasy feeling. It scarcely amounted to a suspicion, as to the business of the marsh, chiefly because he thought the official talk about the railway embankment and the course of the river rank nonsense, but finding that nothing more happened, he let the matter drop from his mind and settled himself down to enjoy his holiday. He found to his delight that there were no sentries or watchers to hinder him from the approach to Larnack Bay, a delicious cove, a place where the ash grove and the green meadow and the glistening bracken sloped gently down to red rocks and firm yellow sands. Merritt remembered a rock that formed a comfortable seat, and here he established himself of a golden afternoon and gazed at the blue of the sea and the crimson bastions and bays of the coast, as it bent inward to Sarnau, and swept out again southward to the odd-shaped promontory called the Dragon's Head. Merritt gazed on, amused by the antics of the porpoises, who were tumbling and splashing and gamboling a little way out at sea, 
Charmed by the pure and radiant air that was so different from the oily smoke that often stood for heaven at Midlingham, and charmed, too, by the white farmhouses dotted here and there on the heights of the curving coast, then he noticed a little rowboat at about two hundred yards from the shore. There were two or three people aboard. He could not quite make out how many, and they seemed to be doing something with a line. They were no doubt fishing, and Merritt, who disliked fish, wondered how people could spoil such an afternoon, such a sea, such pellucid and radiant air by trying to catch white, flabby, offensive, evil-smelling creatures that would be excessively nasty when cooked. He puzzled over this problem and turned away from it, to the contemplation of the crimson headlands. And then he says that he noticed that signaling was going on. Flashing lights of intense brilliance, he declares, were coming from one of those farms on the heights of the coast. It was as if white fire was spouting from it. Merritt was certain, as the light appeared and disappeared, that some message was being sent, and he regretted that he knew nothing of heliography. Three short flashes, a long and very brilliant flash, then two short flashes. Marriott fumbled in his pocket for pencil and paper so that he might record these signals, and bringing his eyes down to the sea level, he became aware, with amazement and horror, that the boat had disappeared. All that he could see was some vague, dark object far to the westward, running out with the tide. Now it is certain, unfortunately, that the Marianne was capsized, and that two schoolboys and the sailor in charge were drowned. The bones of the boat were found amongst the rocks far along the coast, and the three bodies were also washed ashore. The sailor could not swim at all. The boys only a little, and it needs an exceptionally fine swimmer to fight against the outward suck of the tide as it rushes past Pennegreg Point. But I have no belief whatever in Marriott's theory. He held, and still holds for all I know, that the flashes of light which he saw coming from Penrith Hall, the farmhouse, oh, the height, had some connection with the disaster to the Marianne. When it was ascertained that a family were spending their summer at the farm, and that the governess was a German, though a long, naturalized German, Merritt could not see that there was anything left to argue about, though there might be more details to discover. But in my opinion, all this was a mere mare's nest. The flashes of brilliant light were caused, no doubt, by the sun lighting up one window of the farmhouse after the other. Still, Merritt was convinced from the very first, even before the damning circumstance of the German governess was brought to light, and on the evening of the disaster, as Lewis and he sat together after dinner, he was endeavoring to put what he called the common sense of the matter to the doctor. If you hear a shot, said Merritt, and you see a man fall, you know pretty well what killed him. There was a flutter of wild wings in the room. A great moth beat to and fro and dashed itself madly against the ceiling, the walls, the glass bookcase. Then a sputtering sound, a momentary dimming of the lamp. The moth had succeeded in its mysterious quest. Can you tell me, said Lewis, as if he were answering Merritt, why moths rush into the flame? Lewis had put his question as to the strange habits of the common moth to Merritt with the deliberate intent of closing the debate on death by heliograph. The query was suggested, of course, by the incident of the moth and the lamp, and Lewis thought that he had said, Oh, shut up, in somewhat elegant manner. And in fact, Merritt looked dignified, remained silent, and helped himself to port. That was the end that the doctor had desired. He had no doubt in his own mind that the affair of the Marianne was but one more item in the long account of horrors that grew larger almost every day, and he was in no humor to listen to wild and futile theories as to the manner in which the disaster had been accomplished. Here was a proof that the terror that there was upon them was mighty, not only by the land, but on the waters, for Lewis could not see that the boat had, could have been attacked by any ordinary means of destruction. From Merritt's story, it must have been in shallow water. The shore of Lordock Bay shows very gradually, and the Admiralty chart showed the depth of water 200 yards out to be only two fathoms. 
This would be too shallow for a submarine, and it could not have been shelled, and it could not have been torpedoed. There was no explosion. The disaster might have been due to carelessness. Boys, he considered, would play the fool anywhere, even in a boat. But he did not think so. A sailor would have stopped them. And it may be mentioned that the two boys were, as a matter of fact, extremely steady, sensible young fellows, not in the least likely to play foolish tricks of any kind. Lewis was immersed in these reflections, having successfully silenced his brother-in-law. He was trying in vain to find some clue to the horrible enigma. The Middlingham theory of a concealed German force hiding in places under the earth was extravagant enough, and yet it seemed the only solution that approached plausibility. But then again, even a subterranean German host would hardly account for this wreckage of a boat floating on a calm sea. And then what of the tree with the burning in it that had appeared in the garden there a few weeks ago, and the cloud with the burning in it that had shown over the trees of the Midland village? I think I have already written something of the probable emotions of the mathematician confronted suddenly with an undoubted two-sided triangle. I said, if I remember, that he would be forced, in decency, to go mad, and I believe that Lewis was very new to this point. He felt himself confronted with an intolerable problem that most instantly demanded solution, and yet, with the same breath as it were, denied the possibility of there being any solution. People were being killed in an inscrutable manner, by some inscrutable means day after day, and one asked why and how, and there seemed no answer. In the Midlands, where every kind of mutinotment was manufactured, the explanation of German agency was plausible, and even if the subterranean notion was to be rejected as savoring altogether too much of the fairy tale, or rather of the sensational romance, yet it was possible that the backbone of the theory was true. The Germans might have planted their agents in some way or another in the midst of our factories, but here in Marion, what serious effect could be produced by the casual and indiscriminate slaughter of a couple of schoolboys in a boat, of a harmless holiday-maker in a marsh? The creation of an atmosphere of terror and dismay. It was possible, of course, but it hardly seemed tolerable, in spite of the enormities of Louvain and of Lustiania. Into these meditations and into the still dignified silence of merit broke the rap on the door of Lewis's man and those words which harass the ease of the country doctor when he tries to take any ease. You're wanted in the surgery, if you please, sir. Lewis bustled out and appeared no more that night. The doctor had been summoned to a little hamlet on the outskirts of Porth, separated from it by a half a mile or three-quarters of the road. One dignifies, indeed, the settlement without a name and calling it a hamlet. It was a mere row of four cottages, built about a hundred years ago for the accommodation of the workers and the quarry, long since disused. In one of these cottages, the doctor found a father and mother weeping and crying out to Dr. Bach, Dr. Bach, and two frightened children and one little body, still and dead. It was the youngest of the three, little Johnny, and he was dead. The doctor found that the child had been asphyxiated. He felt the clothes. They were dry. It was not a case of drowning. He looked at the neck. There was no mark of strangling. He asked the father how it had happened, and father and mother, weeping, most lamentably declared that they had no knowledge of how their child had been killed. Unless it was the people that had done it. The Celtic fairies were still malignant. Lewis asked what had happened that evening. Where had the child been? Was he with his brother and sister? Don't they know anything about it? Reduced into some sort of order from its original, piteous confusion, this is the story that the doctor gathered. All three children had been well and happy through the day. They had walked in with the mother, Mrs. Roberts, to Porth, on a marketing expedition in the afternoon. They had returned to the cottage, had had their tea, and afterwards played about on the road in front of the house. John Roberts had come home somewhat late from his work, and it was after dusk when the family sat down to supper. 
Supper over, the three children went out again to play with other children from the cottage next door, Mrs. Roberts telling them that they might have half an hour before going to bed. The two mothers came to the cottage gates at the same moment and called out to their children to come along and be quick about it. The two small families had been playing on the strip of turf across the road, just by the stile into the fields. The children ran across the road, all of them except Johnny Roberts. His brother Willie said that just as their mother called them, he heard Johnny cry out, Oh, what's that beautiful shiny thing over the stile? End of chapter 9
the children whispered to one another that Johnny would catch it when their mother came out of the back room and found him missing. But they expected he would run in through the open door any minute. But six or seven, perhaps ten minutes passed, and there was no Johnny. Then the father and mother came into the kitchen together and saw that their little boy was not there. They thought it was some small piece of mischief, that the two other children had hidden the boy somewhere in the room, in the big cupboard, perhaps. "'What have you done with him, then?' said Mrs. Roberts. "'Come out, you little rascal, directly in a minute!' There was no little rascal to come out, and Margaret Roberts, the girl, said that Johnny had not come across the road with them. He must still be playing all by himself by the hedge. "'What do you let him stay like that for?' said Mrs. Roberts. "'Can I trust you for two minutes together? "'Indeed to goodness, you are all of you more trouble than you are worth.' "'She went to open the door. "'Johnny, come you in directly or you will be sorry for it. "'Johnny!' "'The poor woman called at the door. "'She went out to the gate and called there. "'Come you, little Johnny, come you bochin. "'There's a good boy. I do see you hiding there.' "'She thought he must be hiding in the shadow of the hedge "'and that he would come across, running and laughing. "'He was always such a happy little fellow to her across the road. "'But no little merry figure danced out of the gloom of the still, dark night. "'It was all silence. "'It was then, as the mother's heart began to chill,' though she still called cheerfully to the missing child, that the elder boy told how Johnny had said there was something beautiful by the stile, and perhaps he did climb over and he is running now about the meadow and has lost his way. The father got his lantern then, and the whole family went crying and calling about the meadow, promising cakes and sweets and a fine toy to poor Johnny if he would come to them. They found the little body under the ash grove in the middle of the field. He was quite still and dead, so still that a great moth had settled on his forehead, fluttering away when they lifted him up. Dr. Lewis heard this story. There was nothing to be done, little to be said to these most unhappy people. "'Take care of the two that you have left to you,' said the doctor as he went away. "'Don't let them out of your sight if you can help it. "'It is dreadful times that we are living in.' "'It is curious to record that all through these dreadful times "'the simple little season went through its accustomed course at Porth. "'The war and its consequences had somewhat thinned the numbers of the summer visitors.' Still, a very fair contingent of them occupied the hotels and boarding houses and lodging houses and bathed from the old-fashioned machines on one beach or from the new-fashioned tents on the other and sauntered in the sun or lay stretched out in the shade under the trees that grow down almost to the water's edge. Porth never tolerated Ethiopians or shows of any kind on its sands, but the Rockets did very well that summer in their garden entertainment, 
given in the castle grounds and the fit-up companies that came to the assembly rooms are said to have paid their bills to a woman and to a man. Porth depends very largely on its midland and northern custom, custom of a prosperous, well-established sort. People who think Flandedlo overcrowded and Colwyn Bay too raw and red and new come year after year to the placid old town in the southwest and delight in its peace. And, as I say, they enjoyed themselves much as usual there in the summer of 1915. Now and then they became conscious, as Mr. Merritt became conscious, that they could not wander about quite in the old way, but they accepted sentries and coast-watchers and people who politely pointed out the advantages of seeing the view from this point rather than from that as very necessary consequences of the dreadful war that was being waged. Nay, as a Manchester man said, after having been turned back from his favorite walk to Castell Koch, it was gratifying to think that they were so well looked after. So far as I can see, he added, there's nothing to prevent a submarine from standing out there by innocent and landing half a dozen men in a collapsible boat in any of these little coves. And pretty fools we should look, shouldn't we, with our throats cut on the sands, or carried back to Germany in the submarine? He tipped the coast watcher half a crown. That's right, lad, he said. You give us the tip. Now, here was the strange thing. The North Countryman had his thoughts on elusive submarines and German raiders. The Watcher had simply received instructions to keep the people off Castech Koch fields without reason assigned. And there can be no doubt that the authorities themselves, while they marked out the fields as in the terror zone, gave their orders in the dark and were themselves profoundly in the dark as to the manner of slaughter that had been done there. For if they had understood what had happened, they would have understood also that their restrictions were useless. The Manchester man was warned off his walk about ten days after Johnny Roberts' death. The watcher had been placed at his post because, the night before, a young farmer had been found by his wife lying on the grass close to the castle with no scar on him, nor any mark of violence, but stone dead. The wife of the dead man, Joseph Craddock, finding her husband lying motionless on the dewy turf, went white and stricken up the path to the village and got two men who bore the body to the farm. Lewis was sent for and knew at once when he saw the dead man that he had perished in the way that the little Roberts boy had perished whatever awful way that might be. Craddock had been asphyxiated, and here again there was no mark of a grip on the throat. It might have been a piece of work by Burke and Hare, the doctor reflected. A pitch pastor might have been clapped over the man's mouth and nostrils and held there. Then a thought struck him. His brother-in-law had talked of a new kind of poison gas that was said to be used against the munition workers in the Midlands. Was it possible that the deaths of the man and the boy were due to some such instrument? He applied his tests, but could find no trace of any gas having been employed. 
carbonic acid gas? A man could not be killed with that in the open air. To be fatal, that required a confined space, such a position as the bottom of a huge vat or of a well. He did not know how Craddock had been killed. He confessed it to himself. He had been suffocated. That was all he could say. It seemed that the man had gone out at about half-past nine to look after some beasts. The field in which they were was about five minutes' walk from the house. He told his wife he would be back in a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes. He did not return, and when he had been gone for three quarters of an hour, Mrs. Craddock went out to look for him. She went into the field where the beasts were, and everything seemed all right, but there was no trace of Craddock. She called out. There was no answer. Now the meadow in which the cattle were pastured is high ground. A hedge divides it from the fields which fall gently down to the castle and the sea. Mrs. Craddock hardly seemed able to say why, having failed to find her husband among his beasts, she turned to the path which led to Castell Koch. She said at first that she had thought that one of the oxen might have broken through the hedge and strayed, and that Craddock had perhaps gone after it. And then, correcting herself, she said, There was that, and then there was something else that I could not make out at all. It seemed to me that the edge did look different from usual. To be sure, things do look different at night, and there was a bit of sea mist about, but somehow it did look odd to me, and I said to myself, have I lost my way then? She declared that the shape of the trees in the hedge appeared to have changed, and besides, it had a look as if it was lighted up somehow. And so she went on towards the stile to see what all this could be, and when she came near, everything was as usual. She looked over the stile and called, and hoped to see her husband coming towards her, or to hear his voice, but there was no answer, and glancing down the path, she saw, or thought she saw, some sort of brightness on the ground. A dim sort of light, like a bunch of glowworms in the edge bank. And so I climbed over the stile and went down the path, and the light seemed to melt away. And there was my poor husband lying on his back, saying not a word to me when I spoke to him and touched him. So for Lewis, the terror blackened and became altogether intolerable, and others, he perceived, felt as he did. He did not know, he never asked, whether the men at the club had heard of these deaths of the child and the young farmer, but no one spoke of them. Indeed, the change was evident. At the beginning of the terror, men spoke of nothing else. Now it had become all too awful for ingenious chatter or labored and grotesque theories. And Lewis had received a letter from his brother-in-law at Middlingham. It contained the sentence, 
I am afraid Fanny's health has not greatly benefited by her visit to Porth. There are still several symptoms I don't like at all. And this told him, in a phraseology that the doctor and Merritt had agreed upon, that the terror remained heavy in the Midland town. It was soon after the death of Craddock that people began to tell strange tales of a sound that was to be heard of nights about the hills and valleys to the northward of Porth. A man who had missed the last train from Miros had been forced to tramp ten miles between Miros and Porth seems to have been the first to hear it. He said he got to the top of a hill by Trendenoch, somewhere between half-past ten and eleven, when he first noticed an odd noise that he could not make out at all. It was like a shout, a long, drawn-out, dismal wail coming from a great way off, faint with distance. He stopped to listen thinking at first that it might be owls hooting in the woods. But it was different, he said, from that. It was a long cry, and then there was silence, and then it began over again. He could make nothing of it, and feeling frightened, he did not quite know of what. He walked on briskly and was glad to see the lights of Porth Station. He told his wife of this dismal sound that night, and she told the neighbors, and most of them thought it was all fancy, or drink, or the owls after all. But the night after, two or three people who had been to some small merrymaking in a cottage just off the Miros Road heard the sound as they were going home soon after ten. They, too, described it as a long, wailing cry, indescribably dismal in the stillness of the autumn night. Like the ghost of a voice, said one, as if it came up from the bottom of the earth, said another. End of chapter 10